Well, how many of you guys went to a Christmas party of some sort this month? Well, we had a, a Christmas party on, uh, well, Christmas Eve. We went to Sharon's mother's house, and so her sisters and all that extended family all got together. And, and it was a, a pretty wild time, as it usually is when Sharon's sisters are around. And we, we played some party games. One of them was a trivia game. And had all sorts of Christmas questions. And one of the questions was, what were the names of the three wise men? And that stuck out to me because they didn't have any names. I mean, biblically at least, there, there were no names listed. Of course, um, traditionally there have been names that have been given to them down through the years. We don't really know a lot about the Magi. I mean, the Bible just says the wise men came from the east and they visited so from the biblical perspective, that doesn't really give us much about who they were or, or where exactly they were came from, these people who came to worship the infant Jesus. And it's worth noting, I think, how these wise men worshipped Jesus. They came and their worship was giving Him gifts. And really, that's a, a, the, pretty common for worship in the Bible. When people worshipped, especially like in the Jewish Tradition, worship was taking sacrifice to the altar. I mean, that was worship. Obviously, there's, you know, they sang songs and they um, went to the synagogue and things like that, but when they worshiped, it was usually some sort of sacrifice made in worship. The, the shepherds came and they worshiped Jesus. They probably didn't have much to offer. They were working out in the field, so they were probably packing light, but, but they came and they worshiped Jesus. And the wise men worshiped Jesus. And, and it seems like most of the time that worship is happening in the, in the Bible, there's some sort of sacrifice or giving of yourself. There's gifts that are given. Today, in our modern worship, it's, it's a little bit different. A lot of times, you'll hear churches call it the music time. That's the worship time. Really, we ought to be worshiping all our lives. Our lives ought to be worship all the time. Everything we do ought to be centered around Jesus Christ in our lives. What are we doing as to be living sacrifices, to living out our worship? I mean, we don't make sacrifices like they did in the Old Testament. We don't bring animals to the altar and kill them and burn them. We, our sacrifice is, comes in many forms. It can be you know, money that we put in the plate as a sacrifice. The, the commitment that we make to serve the people around us, to, to serve our neighbors, to take care. You know, we go into the Rockford, Rockford Rescue Mission is coming up this week. That's a sacrifice that people can make. The, the gifts that we give to the poor, those kinds of things. There's lots of ways that we can be living sacrifices, putting ourselves out on the line to spread the gospel to other people. So we ought to be living lives of worship. And it's kind of interesting that these people came from kind of near and far to worship this newborn baby Jesus. So who were these guys? I thought it would be kind of fun. We're used to the manger scene. We've got a pretty manger scene here. And we've got the three kings who are all decked out pretty nicely and they've got, each got their little gift that they're bringing. And we're used to that manger scene. It's a pretty common picture. But the truth is, the wise men probably didn't show up at the manger. They probably weren't there. They, they, they weren't there probably at least a few weeks, at, you know, at minimum. And probably up to more than a year is, is quite likely. And I'm sure that most of you have some sort of picture in your own head when you think about the wise men and what they looked like and maybe it came from a ranger scene or a movie or something that you just thought up as you're reading the scripture but i sometimes wonder if the the wise men were more like the have you ever heard of wise guys in 
organized crime in the mob. And I sometimes think that these wise men were, not that they were criminals, but these were guys who held positions of power and influence and they got what they wanted when they wanted it, otherwise somebody got whacked. I mean, I to, that's my picture of these, these wise men. The traditional picture, of course, is three guys who hopped on their camels and they, they followed the star and, and they showed up at the manger on the night that Jesus was born. They saw him there laying in the, in the manger and each of them had a pretty little gift bag that they offered to the newborn baby and they, they were there and the shepherds were there and Jesus and Joseph and Mary all posed together for the pretty manger scene photo that everybody reproduces and then they hopped back on their camels and they headed back east again. And over the years... Since we've had the Christmas story, people have embellished that, that picture that we have by making them kings. The Bible doesn't say anything about kings, but we've turned them into kings. We've got the song that says, We Three Kings of Orientar. And, and of course, we've, we've given each of them a different nationality. So in the tradition, one is a Persian, one is an Indian, and one is an Arabian. Unless there's, there is the version where they're each descendants of Noah's, like one is from Ham's line and one's from Shem and one's from Japheth's line and that would make them, I don't know why it makes them this, but there's a lot of times you get the politically correct picture. There's a white one and a black one and an Asian looking one. This is all just stuff that we've made up. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. And uh, over the centuries, people have even come up with names for them. And so the names that they were looking for on the, on the Christmas trivia game that we played at the party are Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar. And again, these are just names that somebody made up and have tacked on, so that's the tradition that they've, they've carried down. So since the Magi came sometime after the birth of Christ, I thought the Sunday after Christmas would be a good time to, to explore just who these mysterious visitors are, because history does tell us something about the Magi that these guys from the east, and, and why they traveled so far to meet this Messiah. Why they came from where they did to come and worship this little baby. Because the Bible doesn't say anything about their names or their nationality or, or even their, their number. It doesn't say there were three guys. There could have been ten guys. There could have been twenty guys. There could have been two. It doesn't really say. Um, the reason that we think of three is because they brought three gifts. But all, it really, all the Bible really does is give us a description of the, the men as wise men. In Matthew 2, our Scripture starts off, it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, in the time of King Herod, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And that's the description it gives. They were from the east. They were men from the east. Now the word that we get wise men from, the, from the biblical Greek, where it comes out of, is it's translated from the Greek word magos, which is the plural form of magoi, is the base word. And, and really, to understand what magoi means, you have to go back to the Babylonians, which is six centuries earlier. Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians who came after them. If you remember our study in Daniel that we did a while back, then you know that the kings always had a collection of, of advisors around. And these were magicians and dream interpreters and seers that they had. These were part of their court. People that when they wanted an answer to some question, they would call these people around, these wise men around. And the ancient historian Herodotus, he was the guy who recorded the 
Jewish history way back when. And he gives us some insight into who these magi were back then. And, and these were these wise men would serve the kings as teachers, as priests, as physicians, as astrologers and sorcerers and advisors, you know, any number of roles that these wise men would take. And they were positions of power. They were up there. They were in the court of the king. They had prestige. They were well known. Unless, of course, you couldn't actually tell the king what he wanted to know. And then not only was your job at stake, your life could be at stake too. We've read that like in Nebuchadnezzar threatened to kill every single one of the wise men if they couldn't interpret a dream for him. And that's what a magi was. That's where we get the word magi comes out of that history. The, you know, all the way back in Babylon and, when the, and then in Persia when the Medes and Persians took over, Daniel was a magi for King Nebuchadnezzar. He was a wise man. He was the, the, you know, they would have called him a magician. He wasn't really a magician. He was a dream interpreter. But, but he would have been a, magis- a, a magi for King Nebuchadnezzar. And then after King Nebuchadnezzar passed on, he served other Babylonian kings down through the line. And then when the Babylonians were conquered by the Medes and the Persians, he served Medo-Persian kings. So he was a lifelong, basically, wise man. He was an official magi. And the Greek word magoi is actually transliterated from the Persian language. There was a Persian word that comes that sounds kind of like magoi, and that gets transliterated into the Greek and then in Latin, it becomes magi. So from Magoi in Greek to magi in Latin. And then in English, we just say wise man. And so we actually get words like magistrate comes from that same root. Majesty came from that same root. And so just describing them as wise men doesn't quite complete the picture of the kind of reputation and the power and the prestige that these men would have held. And if you remember Daniel who was made chief of the Magi by Nebuchadnezzar when he interpreted the dream. In fact, there was a, after he interpreted that first dream for Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember, the king, the emperor of the entire known world at the time, bowed down to Daniel, which is pretty wild. Just Daniel you know, demonstrated the power of God by interpreting this dream, and Nebuchadnezzar bowed down to him. And that kind of gives you a picture of, of the kind of prestige that these guys could have. And it's interesting to note that the, the official magi, where we get the word from the Persian language, was instituted by the Median king Darius. You remember when the, when the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon, Darius took over in the city for a while, and Darius set up this hereditary priesthood that was termed the magi. They were the official magi. And they were all Medes, so they were all part of the, uh, the, uh, in the family, a certain family of Medes who took over this position as these wise men, the official magi. And kind of like the Jewish Levites, there was a hereditary priesthood within one family of the Jews were the priests. And in the same way, one family of the Medes were these magi. And that kind of explains, might explain a little bit the ill will that all these wise men had these officials remember the the satraps and the priests and the magicians they all hated daniel when he was assigned by darius to be chief of the magi because he was a jew he wasn't a mede he was this outside foreigner then king darius himself was a mede but he liked daniel so much that he appointed him as chief of the magi so here's this foreigner now in charge of this median priesthood and 
so all the other priests and advisors, you know, we read the story, they plotted together to, in order to try to kill Daniel. And that's how he winds up in the lion's den. And, you know, that's a whole separate story. But that's just a, a, a tiny bit of, you know, history on that. And a little bit of trivia for today. The descendants of the Medes today are the people we call the Kurds. So if you ever hear the Kurds and Kurdish people in news today, they're descendants of those Medes way back when. So, of course, the Greeks under Alexander would eventually come and they would conquer Persia. They'd they'd defeat the Persians and the Medes. And the same way that many of the Jews, the Greeks also moved in and they took over Judea. And uh, the the Israelites, the Jews at Jerusalem there, they kind of convinced Alexander not to conquer them. Uh, Well, to kind of be nice to them. They had an agreement. But they had taken over all of Judea and pretty much all the Persian and Median Empire. And so the Jews didn't like Greek society. They wanted to hold on to their cultural identity. And so we've talked about before how there was an uprising and there was a rebellion of the Jews, of a lot of Jews, against the Greeks. Some, some Jews accepted the Greek lifestyle and some Jews totally didn't want anything to do with it because it they felt like it was infecting their religious culture and they didn't want the Greeks to... to to Hellenize the the Jews. And so, in the same way, the people of the Persian (coughs) influence, a lot of those rebelled against this Greek lifestyle too. There were a lot of Persians and Medes who said, we don't want this Greek culture as part of our culture. We want to maintain our cultural identity. So in the same way that the Jews kind of rebelled against that Greek culture, the Persians and the Medes did the same way. And they actually succeeded in regaining power in a, in a huge section of land that we know as the Parthian Empire. And that would have been where Iran is today and Afghanistan and a whole section of land. So it was the, looking from your side, it would have been the Roman Empire over in the east, the little plot of Judea, and then the Parthian Empire over here, which was basically the Medes and the Persians who held on to their cultural identity and they were the, the empire of Parthia. And they, they were strong for the first century B.C. For a long time, they held on to that power against the Romans and against the Greeks and, and after the Romans conquered the Greeks. So they stood up against the Greeks and then they held their strength against the Romans for quite some time. And in the same way that Judea became somewhat of a no-man's land, you remember when the Greeks were in charge, they, after Alexander died, they split up into four separate kingdoms and the two big ones were the, the Ptolemaic, which is in Egypt, and the Seleucids, which was kind of Syria. And they battled back and forth for power, and Judea was kind of that, that buffer zone that kept trading hands and getting, you know, war was always happening, it seemed like, across Judea. There was always soldiers marching through. And so the same way that Judea was a buffer zone between those two Greek empires, when the Romans conquered the Greeks, it, Judea then became kind of this middle no-man's land between Rome and Parthia who were both battling it out. So it's for centuries, Judea was this, this kind of buffer area that was always a place of contention. And it's actually kind of interesting that both, if you remember Herod the Great, his father's name was Antipater, and his, both of them were defeated by the Parthians because they, they were assigned by Rome. They were given the kinghood by Rome to kind of be in charge of Judea. And 
Antipater was kicked out of was pushed out of Judea by the Parthians, and then again when Herod was assigned after his father passed away, he was given the kingdom, and the Parthians kicked him out of his own kingdom of Judea. So it's kind of interesting that for for three years Herod was the king of a place where he couldn't go. And it actually took a Roman siege. The Romans had to come in with an army and siege the, the city of Jerusalem for five months before they could actually take it back over and Herod could finally sit on his own throne for once. And so Herod, if you remember, he was an Edomite. He wasn't a Jew. The Edomites were kind of the, the enemies of the Jews. So Herod had to be kind of careful as the king of Judah to keep his Jewish subjects from conspiring with Parthia because the Jews and the Parthians were pretty friendly. I mean, they had a lot of things in common. They both hated the Romans. So that's probably why we hear that King Herod was so paranoid and was willing to basically murder anybody he didn't trust, including his own family members. If you, got in, you, know, if you threatened him, you were out of there and he wasn't going to let anybody you know, upset his, his hold on power in there. And so during that era... When King Herod was alive, um, the Magi were the kingmakers in Parthia. The Magi, they were still an official kind of group that had moved up from the Persian Empire, and they were in some ways kind of similar to the papacy in the Middle Ages. You remember back in the Middle Ages, the Pope and the Roman Church had they held the power over kings and, and queens, and you know they influenced a lot of European culture because of their power in the region. And in the same way, the Magi were both the religious leaders in Parthia and the magistrates. They, they held governmental power in Parthia. And they were actually the ones who chose and appointed the king of the realm. So the Magi were the kingmakers. They were the ones who chose the king of the region. So at the time of Christ's birth, when these Magi came to visit, it wasn't just three guys on camels that came to visit Judea, they would have been a contingent of powerful officials with armed guards. I mean, this was, we don't really know how many magi there were. The Bible doesn't tell us how many people were in their group. But you can be sure that there was a, it was a caravan. There could have easily been a hundred people or more, including, of course, the magi, however many magi there were, but also an armed military escort, a support staff, because these were important government officials, servants, slaves, and, and of course whatever animals were needed as food or, or transportation for the people and the supplies that they would have needed for that journey. We don't know how long that journey took, but it was from a different kingdom, so it could have been a couple of weeks, could have been a couple of months or, or longer. And the, the last thing that a, a wise person would want to do is to cross into hostile territory without serious protection. So this was a serious armed caravan moving into hostile territory from Parthia into Roman-occupied Judea. And, and this kind of entourage would have been enough to make King Herod very uneasy. And as they arrived in Jerusalem, as this band of people, of armed people from Parthia, arrived in Jerusalem, especially when they came to him and they asked him, where is the one who is born King of the Jews? Because not only would it have been unsettling that here's this armed enemy force who is coming to visit my town, but the question itself would have been kind of an insult. Not just an insult, it, as these guys who were the king makers in their land are here, it's almost a direct threat to Herod's rule. Since he had basically, Herod 
had kind of bribed and bullied his way into office. He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't a Roman. He had kind of manipulated his way into office. So he really didn't have a deserve to be there, but he had won the job through lots of money and lots of influence in the Roman culture. And so here come these kingmakers from Parthia saying, okay, where's the real king of the Jews? And, and verse 1, I'll, go, I'll restart. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the time of King Herod, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? Not just assigned king, not just given the kingdom by Rome. The one who was born king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So that's another interesting thing. Like here Herod, these men are coming to visit Herod and they don't, they don't, I mean, they probably give him some basic respects as king, but they're saying we've come to worship this true king of, of the Jews. And when king, it says in verse 3, it says when King Herod heard this, he was alarmed and all Jerusalem with him. So it wasn't just King Herod that was upset. This was enough to put the whole city on edge. Because here is this Roman occupying force. I mean, they weren't occupiers, but this, this Parthian force moving in to Jerusalem, and we don't know how large they were, but probably were kind of imposing. And from a political perspective, this was like, imagine a group of, of armed people from North Korea or Iran or something coming here and going to Washington, D.C. and saying, where is the one who was born president of the United States? I mean, it's, it's just this weird kind of thing happening that these guys are saying, we want to worship the one who was born king of the Jews and not you, Herod. And, and so King Herod immediately gathers all his own wise men. He's got his advisors and people who are um, telling him, what's going on, and he asked them, what are these guys looking, what are these guys talking about? Because he obviously wasn't Jewish, he he didn't really stay up on the Jewish religion, I mean he was king, so he probably knew a little bit, and he had connections with the priests in town, but but in verse 4 it says, after assembling all the chief priests and the experts in the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born, and Christ is not a last name, it's a title, Messiah is the Jewish word and Christ is the Greek word. But it's the chosen one. And so he's saying, where is this chosen one that they're obviously talking about? Where is he supposed to be born? And so the priests and the experts, they said in verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, they said, for it is written this way by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are in no way least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And that prophecy comes out of Micah, um, and finding out about it would have probably intensified Herod's stress level when he hears this prophecy saying that the king is supposed to come out of Bethlehem. A, a scriptural prophecy threatened his position. I mean, a prophecy that says there is going to be a king who comes up and you know, without any timing, he didn't have any timing on that. He just knew that you know, the prophecy said there will be a king, but now these guys are saying the timing is now, that this king is coming... To, he's going to come of age and, and, and he's the appointed king so he, it wouldn't have made him happy at all to know that now there's a direct threat to his power prophesied by Scripture and these guys from afar are kind of confirming that prophecy. And so we know that, that Herod, right after this, this time period, he, he started developing some, some severe health issues and he died not long after this, but 
I wonder if this news is what really did him in to, to hear about this. There's a real threat to, to his position. And so what's really interesting and, and kind of sad about all of this is that nobody in Jerusalem, uh, aside from Simeon, who was apparently watching, but besides this one old priest, nobody was looking for the Messiah. And they had this information for hundreds of years, the centuries ahead of time, the prophecy said, the Messiah is coming. This is where He's from. This is the, the attributes of His life. This is how He's going to come into the world. I mean, it tells so much about Jesus. It, I mean, it even talks about His life and how He's going to die and all these things. Before He ever arrived on the scene, God had laid out the plan of Jesus' arrival and had told Jerusalem about it and they, they totally missed it. And instead, here come this group of foreign rulers, of foreign people, who not only knew that Jesus was coming, but they knew when and they had a sign to follow to go find Him. And I think the best possible explanation for this, the Bible doesn't really tell us how they got this or why they knew this, but I think the best explanation is Daniel. Almost six centuries before Jesus was born, God had entrusted Daniel with some amazing information. And Daniel was chief of the Magi, which kind of connects him with that whole line of people. But he had information concerning the, the, the entire Gentile world, the geopolitics from then until the end of the, the world. I mean, God had laid out the kingdoms that would come. He was in Babylon when that happened, but God said, you're in the Babylonian kingdom. And he had laid out the Greek, the, the, the Persians and the Medes and the Greeks and then the Romans. He had said, this is how it's going to happen. He had laid out battles. I mean, specific battles and transfers of power between certain kings and and who the, you know, the kings and the certain descendants. I mean, all this stuff got laid out in Daniel that we investigate. It's amazing the intricacy and the amount of information that the prophet Daniel was given about the entire known world that was going to come for hundreds of years. I mean, the, a lot of people talk about the, the, the silent years in the Bible between the last book in the Old Testament and the first book in the New Testament. There's about 400 years where we don't have books. But Daniel lays all that out beforehand because it's given to him in prophecy. And so Daniel is obviously given some, some impressive information, apparently some, uh, some important messianic prophecy. I mean, we're told Daniel gets the information about the, down to the day when Jesus is going to make His triumphal entry into Jerusalem. I mean, Daniel's given the specific timing when the Messiah is going to come. But he's apparently got some other information that he has passed down through the Magi that he passed on this information that he got from God. And, and apparently the, the Magi kept passing it on. I mean, they, held, they took it seriously and they held on to it. And they even knew kind of when and where to look for this star in the sky. I mean, there's, there's obviously some miraculous God influence going on here because stars don't move across the sky. So God kind of woke them up and pointed it out to these foreigners where they could go find this newborn king. They knew who they were looking for. They knew generally where they were looking. And they knew how to get there because of God's influence. At the time, where these wise men came from in Parthia, the king of Parthia, his name was Phraates IV. And he was an aging king. He was not a very popular ruler, not very well liked. And so he was coming kind of to the end of his rule. And so this would have been the season for the Magi to go to work 
with their political maneuvering to kind of maintain the power structure that they wanted in Parthia because they were the ones that would choose the next king. And so it's interesting that instead we find these, instead of picking a new king for Media or for the Parthia, they're seeking out this foreign king in Judah. And they've gone on this long expedition. And I think it's pretty interesting that God chose these guys, these makers of kings in the, of the Medes and the Persians, to come and worship the king of kings born in Bethlehem. And so Herod, obviously he's not a dumb guy. He senses all this as a threat to his rule. And he quickly comes up with a plan to try to neutralize that threat. And verse 7 says, Then Herod privately summoned the wise men and determined from them when the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and look carefully for the child and when you find him, inform me so that I can worship him as well. Of course, we know that Herod had no intention of worshiping anybody because when he realized that the Magi weren't coming back, he, he kind of went by the timing of the Magi's visit and you know, he said, when did the star appear? How long has it been going on? So he figured that the, the Messiah, or whoever this person was, was going to be under two years old. And so he sent his soldiers in to execute every young boy in Bethlehem from zero to two. Just make sure there was, just wipe everybody out, make sure there's not a threat to my power. To, I don't want anybody to actually come and fulfill that prophecy and threaten my position. Too bad Herod didn't realize that if it's true prophecy, you're not going to be able to do anything about it. And unfortunately for him, it didn't matter because it wouldn't be long before disease would overtake his body and he'd suffer all sorts of nasty problems. He'd have worms eating his skin. I mean, it's a terrible thing that, that Herod went through, but it didn't matter whether the Messiah was alive or not. He died early anyway. And so long before... Well, not long before. We don't know how long before, but before the soldiers actually got to Bethlehem to kill these boys, God warned Joseph in a dream to take his family and escape out of there. So they escaped to Egypt before the people in Bethlehem were executed. Um, and the wise men did find what they were looking for. They, they went to Bethlehem. They found the city. They followed the star. It's interesting that the star stopped. I mean, we follow the star through the land and then it stopped over Bethlehem, which is kind of weird for me how you find that because stars are pretty high up there, but, but they knew what to look for. And verse 9 says, after listening to the king, Herod, they left and once again the star, they saw it, after they saw it when they rose, they saw it when it rose and it led them until it stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they shouted joyfully. And as they came into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasure boxes and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So this supernatural star brought the Magi to Jesus. Just as reminds me kind of like the pillar of fire that led the Israelites through the desert. And the star brought them as a miracle work of God. I don't, you know, stars don't move, so we know God was at work. So this definitely wasn't just some historical coincidence. This was truly God directing things to, to unfold. It was a fully planned out and perfectly timed event by the Lord. God had He knew what He was doing and He knew what He wanted to happen and He made sure it did. Um, one other interesting tidbit about this is that notice that the Magi arrive at a house. They don't go to a barn. Them, I, I tend to think that Jesus was really born in a house. There's a, the language 
that, that transcribed from the, the Greek that we translate into English. The inn is the living part of a house and the manger, a lot of houses would have had a manger down in the lower level for animals in the wintertime. So it's very possibly Jesus was born in a house. There just wasn't room with all the... I mean, houses back then, the rooms that we have in our house would be a house to them. I mean, there really wasn't a big place. So you could easily run out of room and a, a manger that was carved out of the rock would have been a great place to put a baby because it had walls on the side. So you put some hay in there, maybe a blanket. And Anyway, when the Magi found Jesus, he was in a house and not in a barn. So we're guessing that they, they didn't arrive the night of Jesus' birth. They probably showed up a little bit later. Could have been a couple of weeks. Could have been up to a... I'm guessing it was probably even more than a year because when Herod went to kill all those kids, he asked the Magi about the timing of the star and they explained it to him, and so Herod figured, well, i got to go at least to two years old. So it could have been up to a year or more when these magi first saw the star and planned their journey and traveled across the region. And we don't know how long it took, but it could have been months, it could have been a year. So it's very possible that Jesus was up to a year or more older by the time the magi got to his house. Um, the reason that, that so many people think there were three is because of the three gifts. I mentioned that. There were quite possibly more gifts than that. I mean, there could have been, these were important people. They could have brought a lot more than gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But you can, you can bet there weren't just three little gift bags like these guys have. There was, there was probably quite a treasure that these guys got. They probably made Joseph and Mary pretty rich with the gifts that they bestowed upon this Christ child, which would have been a nice help if you have to escape the region and go live in a foreign country for a while and you didn't plan on having that travel money. Well, here you've got some nice travel expenses to carry you through until you can get back to... Nazareth, and after who knows how long it's going to take for you to live there. So the reason that the gold, frankincense, and myrrh are mentioned specifically is not because the wise men all shopped at the same store, but because they were prophetic of Christ's life. The gold represents his royal kingship, because gold belongs to the kings. The frankincense represents his priesthood, because frankincense is part of the incense that's presented to in the tabernacle you know they have incense in the showbread before the lord well part of that incense was frankincense so that represents christ's priesthood and then the myrrh is a it's they crush it and turn it into an embalming ointment for when you bury somebody and so the myrrh anticipated christ's death so it's kind of this prophetic picture in the gold the frankincense and the myrrh that's that are that's why they're mentioned specifically and then in verse 12 it says after being warned in a dream not to return to herod they went back by another route to their own country. And they, they found Jesus. They presented their gifts. They worshipped Him. They bowed down. They gave Him. They opened their treasure chests and they gave this child a, a whole lot of stuff. And then they get a message from God. And it's kind of funny. that just, It's just like Daniel. Almost 600 years before, God sends Daniel dreams. And that's what these wise men are used to. That's the, that seems like the preferred method of supernatural communication for magi as dreams. And so God sends them this dream says, don't go back to Herod. And so they find another route out of the country. Um, they, they left secretly, which is probably not easy to do considering the, the kind of traveling party that they had. So, but they found a way to, to leave without Herod knowing where they, when they went and how they left. And so why does this matter to you today? Why am I sharing this history, especially now that Christmas is over and nobody cares about the magi anymore? Well, Isaiah prophesies that when Jesus returns to rule and reign, He will once again be 
offered gifts from foreigners. Isaiah 66, 60 verse 6 says this, A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah and those from Sheba will come and they will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. Notice there's no myrrh. And that's because Jesus' death was once and for all. And so the myrrh's gone and now he gets frankincense and gold. So that's the, the second coming. That's the, like the millennial reign. So the question I'd like you to think about in light of all this, the reason I shared this, is what gifts are you giving Jesus this year? I would guess that, that most, if not all of you, have given or received some sort of gifts for Christmas. And I wonder, was Jesus a part of that this week? Was Jesus a part of your Christmas celebration as you were giving gifts and sharing gifts and receiving gifts? Did you include Jesus on your Christmas list? How are you worshiping Jesus? Because that's what they did. They were giving Jesus gifts as their worship. They were offering Him treasure. The best that they had. Are you worshiping Jesus? I mean, He deserves it, obviously. He's given, he came to the earth and lived His life among us and then gave His life as a ransom to save us from sin and death so that when we believe in Him, He'll, he'll offer us salvation. He'll offer us pardon for all our sins. He'll wipe the slate, slate clean and give us position in His kingdom. He'll make us like sons and daughters of God. I mean, we get adopted into God. I mean, that's an amazing thing. Jesus deserves worship for who He is, for what He's done. And obviously, He doesn't need our stuff. I mean, everything good that we've ever gotten has come from Jesus anyway. So it's not like He needs our money or needs our stuff. He's got His own kingdom that doesn't depend on material goods from earth. And I doubt any of you have much in the way of gold and frankincense and myrrh anyway. Maybe a few pieces of jewelry, but not much to speak of. So, so what do you have to offer? Money? Time? Service? I mean, those are all things that we should be worshiping God with. We should be putting Him first when it comes to spending our money and giving our money. God should be first. When it comes to spending our time and giving our time, God should be first. When it comes to using our talents and giving of our service, God should be first. How about your, your, your lifestyle? Your choices? Your, your heart? Are you willing to truly live your life as a living sacrifice for Jesus? That's what worship is. It's not just singing songs. It's not just coming to church. We're about to kick off a new year in a few days. A few days. Brand new year. And, uh, and lots of people like to make resolutions for the new year. I have a suggestion for you. This new year, don't have to wait for the new year. Start today. Resolve to live a life of worship. And, and not just you know, going to church, not just singing songs on Sunday morning. I, I mean a life of offering yourself to God. Like it says, a living sacrifice. Giving yourself and all your resources. Everything you are and everything you have. Putting Jesus Christ first in how you use all of it. To live in righteousness apart from sin because that's what Jesus commands us to do. To, to take care of those who can't take care of themselves, especially your Christian brothers and sisters, because that's what Jesus commands us to do. 
to give of your time and your money and your talents that God has blessed you with to, to grow His kingdom, to serve Him, to worship Him, and most of all, to share the life-saving good news that, that He came to give us with the people who are lost and dying in this world. Because that's what Christ commanded us to do. Romans 12 starts like this, Therefore I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living, as a sacrifice, alive and holy and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. That's your challenge as a resolution for this coming year. To live lives of worship. Jesus deserved that as a little newborn baby before He'd done anything because of who He was and, and what God was doing. Jesus deserved that worship that the kings brought, that the, the magi brought to Him, that the shepherds brought to Him. I mean, He, he deserves that worship. He deserves our worship. So my challenge to you is to give Him that worship to live holy lives, to live good lives, to live generous lives, to live courageous lives, to live the kind of life that Jesus has made you and called you to live. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much. The, the, the gifts that the wise men brought are nothing compared to what You have given to us. That the treasure chests full of who knows what all they brought, the the gold and the spices and the ointments, that all those things, they're just a drop in the bucket compared to the many gifts that You have given back to the world. And in fact, all the things that we have to give You, You've already given us. Our money, our talents, our time. I pray that You would help us to worship You in our giving, in our sacrificial living, that we could be true living sacrifices and that we consider everything we have, everything we are, every resource we have around us, to be yours and that we'd be willing to give it to you, to live for you, to use everything we have for you, to make you the priority in our life for this coming year. Help us to do that, Lord. We know we can't do it without your help. Even the ability to give to you comes with your help. The ability to live for you comes with your help and we can't do it without your Holy Spirit. So God, I just pray that you would help us to live the way you've called us to live. Help us to see the truth, to see your work, and to worship you with our lives. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.